Section 6 of G. K. Chesterton in Vanity Fair magazine. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. G. K. Chesterton in Vanity Fair magazine by G. K. Chesterton. Section 6 Nothing and the New Religions. These loose papers are strung together by a thread of theory, touching the possibility of a renaissance in the sense of a renewal of our civilization. Hitherto I have given only a few notes on the negative side, suggesting that there is no such real freshness in our recent fashions about sport, politics, the drama, and so on. Not one of these is a beginning, but rather a sort of endless end, in what follows, I hope to give a rough sketch of the way in which a renaissance might really begin. But I will pause here, partly to recapitulate and sum up, and partly to point out a possible mistake and answer an obvious criticism. Anyone urging this view is bound to look back at other beginnings in history. He is bound to urge that anything really original will resemble the origins but he is not trying to revive such origins, but only such originality. I suggest that a new development is not often a new discovery, any more than any number of horses added to a stagecoach would make it a steam engine. I may say, in such a case, that the man who first caught and tamed a horse invented something far in advance of most of our inventions. But I do not mean that I want all publicists and politicians to start off by trying to lasso wild horses. The Medieval Workman Thus, in the cases already considered, I have expressed admiration for many antiquities. But I was not admiring their antiquity, but their novelty. I remarked that cricket began with stoolball, and that stool-ball began with stools. But I do not mean that man is to find his way back to that particular wooden stool of medieval workmanship, and sit there forever, so to speak, on the stool of repentance. I mean that medieval men were in a certain spirit, in which something could be done with a stool, and that, if we were in that spirit, we could do as much or more with a stick or a stone or anything else. In the case of the drama, I said that the workmen who acted in the Coventry Mysteries and were genially satirized as acting in the Midsummer Night's Dream were at least amateur actors in the good as well as the bad sense. That is, they were amateurs in the literal sense of lovers. A workman, as for instance a weaver, could condole in some measure and appear as a lover, though his chief humor was for a tyrant. But I do not mean that we ought to train an actor to appear in the character of a wall, or even that it is necessary for a modern comedian to create the part of moonshine. I do not even think, as do some of our more mystical Shakespeareans, 
that it is necessary to reproduce the restricted scenery or shallow stage of the Shakespearean period. I do not see why poor Bottom, having a part to tear a cat in, should not have room to swing a cat in. In those restrictions of space, I fancy, there is rather too much wall and perhaps not a little moonshine. But I mean that certain moral conditions enabled those simple men to enjoy themselves, and that with similar moral conditions we might enjoy ourselves as much, or even more. The principle is the same in the domestic and dietetic criticisms I suggested, which were summed up by saying that our citizenship does not really allow us any self-government. I took the illustration that our grandmothers made cowslip wine, but it does not follow that our grandsons must know how to make cowslip wine, still less how to drink it. I may entertain my fancy with the thought of wild poets extracting wine from wild flowers, or daring adventurers drinking from that dreadful cup, as for instance, the buttercup. But this is not to the point of the argument. The point is that the old family recipes were, so far as they went, real domestic discoveries. They varied with domestic establishments. And one dandelion tea differed from another in glory. It would not be a substitute, even if it were an improvement, that the political power of the brewers should doom us all to drink one kind of beer. Still less is it a substitute that the political power of teetotalers should doom us all to drink no kind of beer. And I went on to note that in other things this mere negation is mistaken for novelty. Thus a poet is as proud of having no meter as if he had invented a new meter. Here again I could only illustrate my meaning from old meters, and I praise those fixed yet fantastic forms of verse, the ballad, the villanelle, the triolet, such as took form in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance and the real springtimes of Europe. But I do not mean that the future epic of the Great War must be written in a series of triolets, or that the national anthem of one of the new democracies should take the exact form of a villanelle. I only mean that we should follow our fathers insofar as they showed their vigor by inventing new forms and not merely by relapsing into old formlessness. Modern, merely destructive fashions have a great deal to learn from these constructive old fashions, if it were only the construction of a sonnet. It may be very absurd for the Elizabethan lover to write a sonnet to his mistress's eyebrow but it would not be an improvement if the lady, having already bobbed her hair, were to shave off her eyebrows. And that is the drift of the destructive fashions, towards some such darkened world of women without eyebrows and men without eyes. New Religions and the Old Mysteries In short, while I heartily agree that so large and loose a criticism has a hundred faults, I shall not be at all disturbed by the very old reproach of returning to what is old. First of all, 
it need not necessarily be a bad thing to do. And secondly, I know I am not doing it. I am not returning to what has grown old, but rather to what cannot grow old. That thing is a certain spirit, of which the terms are to be found rather in philosophy or religion. And I will conclude this negative part of my criticism by briefly noting that in this sphere, also my generalization seems to hold good. There appear to be quite a number of new religions nowadays, and there really are, in the sense that a thousand theories now assume the supernatural and dismiss the merely materialistic. The new religions have plenty of new miracles, but they only have very old mysteries. Mysteries so old as to be obvious, and so obvious as not to be mysterious. The new religions mostly preach a unity in which even their own differentiation would disappear. Perhaps I might delicately hint that dullness seems to be the chief artistic feature of new religions. It is enough here to note that no new religion does dare to do the concrete and, as some would say, comic things done by old mysticism and mythology. Nobody points at an old hat and says it fell from heaven, or a particular lamppost as the solitary light of the world. Still less does he ring the hat with a golden halo or even hang it on a golden hat peg, nor does he build his city round the lamppost as he would round the shrine. But this concrete creative superstition expressed in color and ornament is a very real indication of something new and sincere. There would be more real simplicity and spiritualism if the tables on which the spirits wrap were carved and inlaid like altars, or the planchettes gilded and colored like chalices. What is stale about spiritualism is its pretense of being scientific, a very early Victorian affectation. So of Christian science. Mr. Zangwill said in his pointed and effective fashion that it is science without severity and Christianity without its cross. But if Mrs. Eddy's book is not as severe as science, it must be conceded that it is quite as dry as science. And this featureless and uncreative dullness, as compared with the creeds that made the Greek temples or the Gothic cathedrals, is all that concerns me here. Tennyson and the Gleam I am not touching on the truth of these two new religions, or pretending that such a passing comment can do justice to them in all aspects. I merely observe that they do, in their different ways, fall in with the fashion of dissolving solid things, rather than renewing solid things. They are part of a modern tendency much older than themselves, to make the vision of man vague rather than vivid. I have always felt it in one of the phrases of Tennyson, which seems to me one of the modern mistakes of Tennyson. Instead of making Merlin talk of following the grail, he makes him talk of following the gleam. I doubt whether Merlin, in the Tennyson sense at least, 
would ever have followed the gleam. The grail may be a fairy tale, but it is a tale. It can be told again and again with a thousand enrichments and renewals. It may be a fabulous cup, but it is a cup. It can be carved and painted and pictured in a thousand picturesque associations. But a gleam might be anything or nothing. And I seriously think a man must often pluck first not only the beam, but the gleam out of his own eye before he can see the grail. End of section 6 Nothing and the New Religions Read by Michael Shane Craig Lambert LC.